Uh, hi everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Simon. It's a pleasure uh, to share God's word with you again this evening. Um, please keep your Bibles open as we delve, uh, delve into the final week in our journey to meet our neighbours. Uh, let's pray first. Heavenly Father, help us as we carry what we've learned this month into another year. Help, help us to honour you well as we start to think seriously about how this church can make an impact for the gospel in the community in which you've placed us. Open our hearts tonight to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, over the past four weeks, we've uh, recognised the cultural decline of Christendom in Australia. Uh, we've faced hard truths about our own pride and our approach to our neighbours in younger generations. And we've grappled with some of the aspects of following Jesus that our culture finds more distasteful and how to deal with that. But this week, as we finish the series, we'll have the opportunity to start to think about how we can carry this new knowledge into the rest of the year. We want to walk away from this series ready to actually interact with people in our neighbourhood. For Southside Anglican to be a place that has a reputation as a good place to meet Jesus in our community. For us to reach the least and the lost and the hard-hearted and those who think that they've left religion behind. So this week, we're going to get practical. We want to look at the most effective way to draw in newcomers to our little community here in Mackenzie. What does the evidence say about what we can do as Christians to win hearts? So one of the first things I did was have a look at, at some of the people into your church. And one of, uh, what I found was, uh, I'll be diplomatic and say interesting, um, here are some examples of what I found, and, and please have your notebooks out if you want to write any of these down. Um, maybe the most common was uh, a coffee shop. Uh, I mean, certainly that's really popular uh, in many of the churches I've been to. Uh, you just draw them in with an espresso machine, and then you can slip the gospel in afterwards when they're drinking. Um, we had a few different community projects, community garden, a child minding service, service was pretty popular, and even this one really got me, uh, a self-defense class. Uh, I thought maybe, Daryl, you could hold that one up. Um, <laughs> um, so there were lots of also broader pieces of advice about how to invite people to church. Uh, the top ones I found were be gentle, uh, don't freak them out, and my favorite was start by apologizing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, some of these things are really funny and some were a little sad and some, not many, but some did give interesting ideas about how to meet people in the community. But ultimately, when I synthesized all these suggestions, I started to get a, a, a bit of an insidious picture about what these articles were trying to say about church to the Bible. Nothing about talking to them about Jesus. Barely anything about preaching the gospel. In these articles, the church was something you needed to disguise. The only way that you get people along is if you make church as unchurchy as possible. 
you draw people in with something, dare I say, better. And then you sneak the gospel in later. Like we're surreptitiously trying to feed a toddler broccoli. Ultimately, Jesus and the gospel seems to be, at least in the articles I saw, something that we need to be a bit embarrassed about. It needs to be gussied up to become ultimately uh, palatable. We need, and and look, we can feel a bit high and mighty and look down on these seeker-sensitive approaches to church, can't we? But we've all been there too, haven't we? I remember at school trying to convince my friends that the worship music we played on Sunday was basically rock music, uh, which is definitely not true. Uh, And even if we don't try and polish up the faith with coffee and karate and crazy rock music, we try to polish this thing up in lots of different ways, don't we? Sometimes we fall at the feet of people like William Lane Craig and John Lennox and Lee Strobel as if... The gospel is not enough unless we can prove that it's ultimately rational. Or maybe it's stuff like TV shows and movies and music. Any way to make the gospel seem a bit easier to digest. Or maybe we cling on to a certain Christian celebrity or great preacher. Because to hang our faith on them will give it some more credence as the world around us seems to be moving in another direction, it's all too often, it makes us feel embarrassed to be Christians. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things is wrong in and of themselves, but I bring them up ultimately because I think it reveals something about our hearts. When we think music or coffee or winning a debate or making a movie or appealing to a celebrity are the ways to win hearts, we treat the gospel as if it's only good if we hide it behind something else. And the truth is that this assumption doesn't hold up to what the Bible says, but perhaps surprisingly to our fearful little hearts, it's not what the evidence says either. When we go to our McCrindle research paper on faith and belief in Australia, we see something shocking that should have been completely unsurprising to us. Our participants were polled on their greatest attraction to further investigating Christianity. And a majority, just a little less than half of the focus group, answered that seeing people living out a genuine faith was more attractive than anything else. When asked about what would most likely prompt our participant to start speaking more openly about faith, a majority, a little over one third this time, but a majority said, conversations with friends are more likely than anything to make them reconsider. The evidence would suggest that ultimately our coffees and our music and our movies and our great arguments aren't what people are looking for. They want to see genuine faith and have genuine conversations about the gospel. And to add to that, they also said that celebrities and debates are some of the things most likely to turn them off. So do with that what you will. You know, when I read that, uh, I got a little bit embarrassed, I think. 
it was convicting to read uh, because, at least for me, it opened up my heart and showed me that I thought that I was better or more clever than Jesus. It turns out that when Jesus told us to be salt and light in our communities, he was actually onto something. I looked into it, and it turns out that almost completely without exception, the biggest periods of growth in unbelieving populations in the entire history of the church have been when Christians show genuine faith and love to our neighbours. All of our strategies, all of our attempts to polish and gussy up the faith are pointless. We were wrong, and Jesus was right. It makes me feel a bit sheepish and silly because when you break it down, when I tried to hide the gospel behind music or when we do the same with coffee shops and self-defense classes or arguments or movies, we think that these things are more appealing and noteworthy than the complete cosmic victory that the creator God won over sin and evil and death. Yeah, we, we have a good message, but nobody's going to be interested in the ultimate central purpose to which all creation points and our gracious redemption from the consequences of our enmity with the creator of the universe unless it's hidden behind a poorly made flat white. That's crazy. But the wonderful thing about Jesus is not only did he already 2,000 years ago give us the very same answer that we find in the McCrindle study, but he also anticipated our reluctance to believe it. We're going to spend the rest of this evening in just a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, a portion we're all probably very familiar with, but I think it's best to be reminded of again. Ultimately, the point Jesus wants to make for us here is that the message that the kingdom of heaven has come near and it's not something to be hidden. The gospel is wonderful news. So we should openly live out a genuine faith. Two things we're going to look at this evening. Uh, the gospel is too wonderful for us to fear sharing it. And two, the gospel is so wonderful that it demands to be declared. So as we come for Jesus' ministry, the, the whole book is set into five blocks of ministry followed by extended pieces of teaching. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first one of those big blocks of teaching. It represents the very first big introduction to this concept of the kingdom of heaven. So it makes us lean forward. It, it's what's this going to be like? What's this kingdom of heaven all about? And immediately Jesus presents a picture of this kingdom that is totally countercultural. He opens with the Beatitudes. It's all about meekness and spiritual neediness, about mourning and making peace. The kingdom will be made up of humble, service-driven sufferers and they will be blessed. Every aspect of this thing that Jesus is presenting goes against every instinct of an ancient person as they would think about forming a kingdom. 
And so we get to the final blessing of the opening of this sermon, and it's perhaps one of the most shocking things of all. Read with me from verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Be persecuted, bullied, and insulted. And they're called to be happy about it. It's kind of a difficult pill to swallow, isn't it? Because really this reveals the exact fear that we have about what will happen if we share this gospel straightforwardly. If we live our genuine faith publicly. This is the very reason why we hide behind coffee and movies and music and arguments. Because we're scared. We're scared of this exact result. We don't want to be insulted and persecuted. But here, Jesus strikes straight at our hearts. This is not something to be hidden. The gospel can't be snuck in behind something more palatable. So he's going to open his sermon with this. Oh, you're afraid of this? Let's look at it straight away. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Persecution isn't something to be hidden from. Instead, Jesus says it's going to be a mark of the kingdom. Persecution will be a blessing because it demonstrates that you live in a kingdom that grates against this world's expectation. They're going to buffet against that and they're not going to like it. But the thing is, let's be clear here, Jesus isn't reveling in suffering for suffering's sake. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that suffering is a good in and of itself. But Jesus here says something distinctly more profound than that. This isn't about the suffering, it's about the goodness of the message. That's what makes you blessed. The message of this kingdom is so precious that to carry it in persecution is a blessing. Read with me from verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about this for a moment. Jesus equates those people who live out a genuine faith, who carry the gospel on their lips with the prophets of the Old Testament. That's an extremely weighty and serious claim. These are people in history who had a unique communication with God, the God of the universe. They would carry his life-giving word, be his mouthpiece on, on the earth, something like this. The very God who spoke the laws of physics into existence, whose voice is the source of wisdom itself, who created the rules and the grain by which reality is sustained. That God entrusted people with his words. And then Jesus, that very same God made flesh, said that those who live in his kingdom, who share the gospel, who live out genuine faith, are also like that. Persecution is just a mark of that glorious reality. 
This isn't about glorying in suffering for its own sake. It's that Jesus presents us with a gift so infinitely good and wonderful that no suffering is even worth comparing to this. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The gospel is too wonderful for us to fear sharing it. We need to be reminded of this as we go into our year and we make a way to connect with people in our neighbourhoods. If we come at this from a place of fear and try to hide the good news behind unchurchy community projects, I think we're missing the bigger picture here. This isn't something to be embarrassed of, it's something to glory in. Now, reading this, I started to feel a bit guilty because I've definitely fallen into the trap of being afraid of being insulted or persecuted. I've made the choice to wrap the gospel in something, some other package or to hide it behind something I think is more palatable. But I don't think that the appropriate response here is guilt. I mean, there's a place in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for contrition, but here, the tone is triumphant. You are like prophets, and your spiritual rewards are worth feeling joy over. The solution here is to get some perspective, to feel appropriate joy for the infinite and wonderful heavenly rewards we receive by being part of this kingdom. We're being encouraged to kindle our loves towards appropriate things. Here at Southside, we want to be a good place to meet Jesus. And that's a genuinely astounding thing to go after. That this strange, hot little building beneath the trees in the Brisbane suburbs can be a place where people have the opportunity to meet God incarnate the king of creation, the God-man to whom all reality points, our saviour and our king. That's wonderful. And it's way better than a coffee shop. And so if, if we appropriately orient ourselves toward that reality, then persecution's nothing. If we remind ourselves every day what we actually have, then we won't be embarrassed of it. And we won't fear telling people about it. Because there is nothing less embarrassing than what we have. The gospel is wonderful news, so we should openly live out a genuine faith. And the gospel is too wonderful for us to fear sharing it. That was our first point. Now to our second. The gospel is so wonderful that it demands to be declared. So Jesus goes on to share with us a, a passage we're all likely extremely familiar with if we've spent any time around church or even just been in a street outside of a church. I mean, how many times have you seen some variation on salt or light or city on a hill or new city? Why are the myriad of ways that we can remix this? But this evening, I, I want to invite you to hear this afresh because it comes with all the same weight and excitement that we get from the Beatitudes. 
The, the Beatitudes demonstrate the posture Christians should have toward the kingdom of heaven. And here now, Jesus moves on to the way that we should see the church influencing people around us. So if we want to influence the community around us, we should pay careful attention to this. Despite the fact that the posture of these kingdom dwellers is to be meek and lowly peacemakers and joyful in persecution, Jesus has a really high expectation for the impact they will have on the world. They will be salt and light. Read with me from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So in the ancient world, the salt was a condiment, uh, uh, just like it is for us today. But much more importantly, it was a preservative from decay. There's something profound here that draws a line through the whole narrative of scripture, from the snake to the flood to the desolation of exile. The consequences of sin in the Hebrew Bible have always been marked by decay and breakdown and chaos. It's a cosmic picture of a world in rebellion against its creator. The very problem of evil and chaos in the universe. So to take salt, something every household in the ancient world would have been familiar with as a preservative agent for things like meat, and then to imply that property to the church and the whole earth That makes an incredible cosmic theological statement. It is redemptive language. To preserve the decaying world with salt is to redeem it from the consequences of sin. Because the church carries the gospel, it is to have a preservative effect on this sinful world. God is going to work through his church to secure redemption through Jesus for all. We are called to be the salt of the earth. In our gospel proclamation, we hold the very keys to a solution everyone has been searching for throughout the whole of recorded history. The decay and suffering and chaos of this earth has a solution in Jesus Christ. And through the salt of his church, he will bring the good news of preservation to everyone. In light of that, a karate class seems kind of silly. We don't need anything to polish up this truth. It's already the best thing that we could bring to our community. And so that's where the warning comes in. What's the point? If we don't use this incredible good, if we don't share this gospel with our our community, we might as well be tiny, useless white rocks. And so not only is it silly to try and disguise the church as something else, it's also insulting to the God who gives us this incredible gift. We have redemption in our hands. We can be a good place to meet Jesus, the best news in history 
to offer freely to our community, and yet sometimes we hide it. Beautiful that it demands to be declared. Then we move on to another image. Just like chaos and decay, darkness also represents a very similar thing throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It's an agent, agent of chaos and uncreation. The first act of creation we see God take is to produce light. And so it is the ultimate representation of something coming from nothing, a creative force. And so to be light has the same redemptive property as salt. But there's even an extra element here. Uh, read with me from verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So notice here the change in metaphor. We have a city or a town on a hill and then a household lamp. Both of these metaphors are important because the first draws a distinct connection with the covenant promises of scripture and the other, like salt, is a domestic metaphor that every person in the crowd would have been familiar with. On a hill cannot be hidden. The illusion here is pretty clear if you're familiar with the Old Testament. This is Zion, the city of the king. In Psalm 2, we see this Messiah enthroned in this city high up on the mountain. We see again and again the allusion to this high temple on top of a hill that beams light and blessing into the world. By calling the church the city on a hill, Jesus is making a clear connection to God's whole redemptive covenant. From Abraham's call to be... Uh, a blessing to the nation, to Israel's charge to be being a priesthood to the nations, to this coming Messiah who would bring light. The cosmic picture of Jerusalem was this beautiful city from which light and blessing and wisdom would flow to the rest of the world. It's not just our city on a hill, it's the city on a hill. And so Jesus says, that's you. You, my church, as those who hold the gospel are now the light of the world, the universal cosmopolitan mountaintop that can be seen from miles around where thoughts and blessing and wisdom and God's word flows to the metaphor of the lamp. Because this just shows how ludicrous it would be in to do anything but take full advantage of this world shattering opportunity to pass up the call to be the very light of God in this dark world is just about as silly as putting a basket over your lamp at home is turning on your ceiling lights and then putting duct tape over them you're wasting time and energy and subverting the lamp's very purpose. You don't cover up light. It's a comical image. It's stupid. And so the conclusion is clear. Just as it would be really dumb to cover up a lamp that you were using, 
so too would it be dumb not to take the opportunity to shine your light before others. Genuine faith. Life lived hungering for righteousness, loving God and loving others with deep sincerity and faith in our Lord Jesus. To try anything else would be pure stupidity. Jesus said it here first, and now our neighbors are saying it too. The gospel is wonderful news, so we should openly live out genuine faith. The gospel is so wonderful that it demands to be declared. So what then do we actually do? Uh, this year as we start to think seriously about how we as a church can help our neighbours meet Jesus, how do we go about it? Well, I actually think if it's just for the purpose of meeting people, any creative ideas are fine. We can do whatever works to reach the people in our community. At the very least, to find them and to have the opportunity to speak with them. Maybe we do need to do some of the ideas I mentioned at the start of the sermon. I'm still not sure about a self-defense class, but we can talk about it later. Where I think those things went wrong is that they were deliberately making a point of making church less weird, less churchy, trying to draw people in with things they'd like more. And if we ever think that way, Here's what we need to do. We need to remember that we as a church carry the best thing in creation. That we have been bestowed with the same blessings as the ancient prophets. That we've been given the opportunity to be a preserving balm to this dying world. That we're the light in the darkness and a city on a hill. We're not embarrassing. We're not something to be hidden. We're not something that should be augmented or changed. We carry with us the greatest thing imaginable. We are Christ's church. And we have the profound and deep and mysterious privilege of being able to call ourselves a good place to meet Jesus. As we go into our year, let's ensure above everything else that we make that true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, remind us each day of the privileges that we have in you, that to not be filled with joy and excitement at the wonderful cosmic hope that has been placed in our hands is simply as silly as covering up a light. God, forgive us because we have been embarrassed of all this, of this beautiful new covenant. That we've been embarrassed of the gospel, that we've ever deigned to think that this wonderful and... Above all, help us as we navigate the uncertain waters of 2024 and strive to meet our neighbours. That we care first and foremost that our church would be a good place to meet Jesus. In Jesus' precious name, amen.